Neil Jones and Tim Hurdle are our political commentators this morning. Kia ora kōrua. Morning. Neil Jones was Chief of Staff to Labour leader Jacinda Ardern. Prior to that, Chief of Staff to Andrew Little. He's the Director of the Public Affairs Firm Capital. Tim Hurdle is a former National Party Senior Advisor. He was National Party Campaign Director in 2020, a director of several companies, including Museum Street Strategies, a public affairs firm. That old saying about a week, it feels like ages since the drama surrounding the first cabinet and uh, the opening of Parliament and the swearing in. What do each of you make of, uh, I guess, the opening kind of of this parliament and the opening of this government's term. Go first, Tim. Yeah, I think it was probably uh, one of the more dramatic uh, swearing-ins we've ever had. Uh, plenty of noise. Normally we have the pageantry of people wearing funny costumes and hammering black rods, but we had a bit of a show on the on the floor from the Maori party about signing in that we don't normally get. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was a pretty uh, interesting sort of start. Also, we saw a, a layout of... Um, of a government um, with the way people are seated, that's a bit different to what we've seen in the past. So, so yeah, I th- think it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting start to a new government. What's different about the layout of Parliament? It sounds like a small thing, but who you're sitting next to all the time is more than symbolic, uh, and also it is the great theatre of politics, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You've got um, now. You've got normally you would have uh, the front bench would be the the Labour or National government, and then. The minority parties would be further down the um, the horseshoe that shape of of the seating arrangement, but this time you've got the opposition um, deputy prime minister sitting next to, which is Winston Peters sitting next to Chris Luxon, but they have Shane Jones and they have um, Casey Costello, another New Zealand first minister, right up the front there. Um, you've got David Seymour sitting up near the front, um, so it is it is a true coalition government in that they're sprinkling different parties through the seating plan. So it does it does look a bit different. Um, and also the whips who'd control the flow of voting in the parliament are also seated in a slightly different arrangement so that you have you have two parties sitting next to each other to coordinate and organise. And it's a symbol that you're talking about in a way, the seating arrangement, but what it reflects is the three-way coalition government and the fact that during question time, which is one of parliament's great theatres, those questions are going to be going to ministers and potentially any, you know, in three different parties. That's right. Okay, your take. Yeah, look, I thought the uh, the Party Māori, um, you know, activities around the swearing in, I thought it went really well for them. Um, you know, there will be some people who get offside, but Te Party Māori is only really targeting Māori voters and a segment of Māori voters. And I thought they managed to, um, you know, capture attention, create a bit of drama, and that then goes out and plays on their social media. And one of the things I think, you know, was made well by Ben Thomas as a point in one of his columns was... Te Party Māori don't just see Parliament as a factory for press releases and policy documents, they see it as a place to build a movement. And we saw that rolling out with those protests, with the you know almost a 1,000 people descending on Parliament, protests around the country with the Māori Party having a big role in that. So I think we're going to see more of that, Te Party Māori using Parliament as a stage to really build a movement. What did you make of the protests, Tim? Um, clearly there's going to be a number of uh, flashpoints Probably too strong a word. It's going to the, the likes of when the debate of the uh, principles of the treaty bill comes forward. There are going to be opportunities for protest. And what, where do you see it heading, and with what tenor? Yeah, well, uh, it was interesting that it was described as an activation, um, which I think probably picks up on what Neil's saying, which is it's almost um, done for a, a narrow cast to 
um, create some connection. I, I, I did wonder, given we haven't, haven't even seen a bill or a shape of debate, um, it seems going to the quite extreme to really push out um, that much protest action so early. Um, although I thought there was a really interesting contrast, actually, which was um, James Meagher's speech, um, the Maiden speech, where he spoke about his um, connections and he used a very conventional form of a good, solid speech in Parliament and probably achieved just as much attention um, and got his message across just as well. So I think they probably need to reflect on that, that sometimes it's not necessarily about the show, it's about the words and actually connecting a strong argument together. I think what we saw from Te Pāti Māori was just the start. It was a shot across the bows. And I, d- I do push back at this idea that it was a bit um, early for them or Christopher Luxon said it was unfair because he'd just come in. Now, if he just arrived and you know had an election and nothing had happened, so, you know, yes, you could, you could, you could <laughs> yeah. make an argument. Hey, I've just got here, give me a chance. Yeah. But he has signed two coalition agreements: one with ACT, one with New Zealand First, that have an extremely far-reaching agenda of rolling back many of the gains that Maori have made over the decades. And there is a sense among many Maori, and the Maori King um, Tuhatia has called a you know a, a conference in January to talk about this. There is a pushback and. I was talking to one figure in Māoridom last week who, you know, and I said, oh, you know, this is this is big. And they said, when the Māori nation comes out, you'll see 10, 20 times this. This is just the start. So I think I go back to what I sort of said two weeks ago when the coalition agreements were fresh, that when I looked at them, I thought, this has the risk to overwhelm Luxon's narrative and agenda. Um, not just Māori, but, you know, smoking, climate change, workers' rights, a whole range of things in those agreements that risk ending up creating distractions and creating dissent. And New Zealanders, I don't think, like that kind of division. I think, you know, there will be a honeymoon period of sorts, although we're not seeing it right now. But voters will give Luxon a chance. But I think people don't like this kind of division, and I think it is a serious risk for them. So I wonder, I was just referencing back to the foreshore and seabed, uh, and there are passionately held views in some quarters, and then there's probably a large proportion of the population who just get a headache when we're back in these situations. And whether it's around uh, Waitangi or Ratna next year or National Hui or whether it's around protests or submissions when that bill uh, goes forward to select committee, as is agreed in the coalition agreement, you know, who benefits and who loses? One wonders whether in feeling like he has limited what New Zealand First and ACT get in these agreements, there's been an underestimation of how much publicity and noise there may be around them. Who wins and who loses if that's what's happened, what happens, Tim? Yeah, I think that's um, cl- um, always unclear because we're seeing the minority view quite strongly, but we did have an election and it was a majority view that some of these things were voted for. So we we haven't really seen what the impact will be through any polling or research as to um, probably, you know, and it's a tired old hackney phrase, but the silent majority, what they what they make of all this. Uh, whether they're agreeing with it, whether they've got any regrets. So um, it, w- it will be interesting. I'm not sure that it will um, what greatly damage the government at this stage um, because there's a lot of people who are quite keen for this to yeah, happen. It's, so. more, it's more how intense the debates get and how long. And uh, that's where you can have any number of reactions. You can have people who um, perhaps support Party Māori or um, support the resistance of, of proposed changes, or you can have others, as you're alluding to, who, who double down, or if anything, 
the likes of ACT or New Zealand First may benefit, the one party that may really feel the heat if it gets intense is National. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it's probably the, the moderate middle. And this is the question I would, the, the concern I think that the Maori Party need to have a think about is how they actually articulating their concerns to people who are more casually interested in the issue. Um, because it's, it's, there's so much fire and fury in the, in the protest, you struggle sometimes to really understand what, how, how they're articulating the problem um, and, and what they, what they are concerned about. What of uh, Labour and how it approaches this issue and others now in, in opposition, Neil? Because it's also got, well, it's got to sort itself out and sort of plan out and try not to self-destruct, as oppositions have so often done. But it's also got to be in opposition. And when and where is it going to embrace that? Because at the moment it's being well upstaged by a smaller party. Yeah, and but it is about a long game, and Labor's not going to win on the theatrics. But they are, you know, they have to over a period of time rebuild their credibility. Um, as much as I do think that a lot of peak voters, while they might have voted for National and they might have had some discomfort in the middle around some of the issues around the treaty, I think people, I don't think people expected to see the level of, of sort of radical reaction we've seen from the coalition agreements. And I don't think there was much media attention because media, I don't think, thought someone would ever give that much to the minor parties. So I think on a range of these issues, Labour has an opportunity to say, this isn't quite what you bought, what you, what you, bought. you know, you, you've got to, you might have seen some unexpected things come from this government. Um, they, you know, they obviously can't run that traditional opposition thing of, you know, time for a change isn't everything terrible. They've got about five years before they can credibly do that. Um, but but I do think you know holding national to account on the things they've agreed that people won't necessarily like, and I think holding to account on delivery, ironically, because while Labor's had some pressure on delivery, National has said they'll fix all these things, and sooner or later they'll find it's harder than they expect. All right, before we get to delivery on the question of the budget, which is going to be a big one, let's just keep looking at uh, some of what came out of that first week. Jerry Brownlee is the new speaker. It'd be a struggle to find anyone more experienced in that parliament in standing orders than that. We don't know how keen he was for the gig, but he's got it. Uh, Let's have a look at some of the other early stuff that's going on here. We saw the head of, sorry, the president of, um, the chair of Farmac resign pretty quickly. Um, I'm trying to think of anyone else who has. NZTA chair went on Friday. Thank you. Uh, Now, the police commissioner, this was a very interesting Interaction for some time the incoming police minister refusing to express confidence in the police commissioner, then publishing this letter that we are told the police commissioner agreed to him publishing. How are you seeing this playing out? The police commissioner's language at the moment appears to be, well, this is the direction we believe we should head anyway. But how are you reading that one, Tim? I thought it was uh, the problem had been there's always this concept of the independence of the constabulary and that the police can't be directed by by the government, and so it, it sort of had was one of those translation issues of how do you take opposition rhetoric into government, and um, Mark Mitchell found the formula of um, setting out some clearer expectations for the commissioner rather than um, actually trying to sack him, which probably could have sparked some sort of constitutional argument. Um, so I thought it was I thought it was a pretty pretty reasonable approach, but I was um, I thought they were probably um, it became more of a drama than it should have been, really. Um, yeah, it would be my pick. Yeah, look, I thought the politics from Mark Mitchell was probably sound. Um, it was good. It was smart not to get into a fight trying to sack a commissioner. I thought laying out the expectations sort of was in line with what he'd campaigned on. As always, though, the challenge will be in the delivery. 
uh, National will find in three years' time there are still gangs, there are still crimes, there are still ram raids, and they will have to answer for how they've actually reduced crime. And there will be, uh, still at the moment, just talking to corrections, hundreds of officers short there Indeed. in dealing with, a, with an escalating issue. Let's talk about delivery then on some of those fronts. The opening of the books post-election, the DFU will happen on December 20th and the mini-budget will happen at the same time. There's kind of a phony war happening at the moment, everything from Kiwi Rail, um, uh, cost of Kiwi Rail's upgrade project, uh, right through to funding for uh, Three Waters, the interim Three Waters work running out, a so-called fiscal cliff. How much of this really should have been anticipated and is about positioning for what will be a very challenging mini-budget and beyond? Well, it's all theatre. Um, every government comes in and they say the last lot left a wreck. Um, National came in in 2008 and said, we've been left a decade of deficits by Labour, have spent all the money and crashed the economy. Just ignore the fact there's a global financial crisis happening. And Labour spent, spent their six years talking about National's nine years of neglect. Um, the reality is, you know, these fiscal cliffs Nicola Willis talks about, some of them are actually mentioned in National's alternative budget. If you go back and read their fiscal plan, they knew about it, they talked about it, they budgeted for it. Uh, Prefu included, if you read pages 65 to 111, extraordinary detail about all of the fiscal risks the government faces. Um, this is a, you know, and, and, and for, for, for Grant Robertson to have hidden anything, he would have had to have broken the law, Treasury would have had to have broken the law, and the Auditor General would have had to have been complicit on it when they ordered the, the Prefu books. So it just doesn't make any sense. I think this is pure theatre, and, you know, the reality is governments have to expect there to be overruns and blowouts and costs. Again, those are all listed, those risks in Prefu. Uh, Labor faced this in 2017. They had hundreds of millions of dollars of risks that they discovered when they arrived. Um, this is just the nature of it. And so I think this, is this achieves two things, what Nicola Willis is doing. One is to try to tar the reputation of the previous government and hope journalists run it without checking. And two is to try to explain why their numbers don't add up. I disagree with that because um, there was there was um, talk at the time of the preview, and I know I was mentioning it on the radio that the um, every budget has an allocation for unallocated expenditure or future problems. As Neil says, they have to be budgeting for the problem. But the way that Grant had cut those back um, and pretty much allocated some of that meant there was no headroom. Um, for for unexpected contingencies like that, and so these these things are now. You could argue that National should have called that out more at the time, um, but there are definitely problems um, that are blowing out. This is one of the issues: is the roading budget. There were there were budget documents back in um, July. Uh, there's a newsroom story I'm looking at in front of me, which was talking about how transport funding was not there in the budget. Um, that was a Treasury warning. So so these things have been sort of on the radar. I guess the question is. Um, in some ways, why we didn't hear more about it before the election. What of the um, economic data that's out this week, uh, what difference is, any, if, is that going to make? Uh, obviously, if you have um, better GDP numbers, you might be heading to better tax take, you might be heading to uh, a lesser deficit. What else will we be looking for out of this week's data, Tim? Uh, well, I think we're so far... Um, We've got quite a significant budget deficit now, and, a, and there's a $10 billion cash deficit. The economy has to move quite dramatically in its favour. Um, we have got big problems now because our economic growth seems to be driven off the back of um, net migration. 
Um, so we really are going to have to be looking to see how the um, government responds to this to maintain the confidence of the credit rating agencies who I understand are starting to look at the fact that um, we we haven't got a path to uh, a credible path to surplus until 2026. And so if you look at Australia, they're doing they're, they're making a budget surplus, but they're still cutting back on a, a migration here. I think this economic data uh, really starts to um, we're now getting to the other side where we can't um, pretend anymore that there's no problems. We're going to have to work out what we're going to do about it. And questions this morning, I think, indicated possibly trying to bring back that current headline immigration or net immigration figure. Yeah, look, what I don't understand with all this talk about the finances being tight and the need to return to surplus is why National proceeds with these $3 billion of landlord tax cuts. I don't understand why they are so committed to it. This sort of thing isn't popular with the public. They've got every excuse to even just delay the introduction or pause, but they seem very committed to this very large payout to a very small and privileged minority, and many of their problems would go away if they just nixed that, and most of the public would understand. So that's the one thing I find really hard to understand in this whole this whole discussion. And it's worth bearing in mind as we talk about hard cuts that need to be made and social programs that might have to be ditched when we come to the mini-budget, that politics is about choices, and that's a choice that remains on the table for them. Okay. Uh, what's your take on Labour, Tim? And at, at the moment, is it most important that it regroup and pick its battles rather than, I think, as the leader said recently, chase every bark or bark every every um, car? Yeah, I think that that's um, that's very good advice. But the the, the problem they're going to have now is they're probably going to fight the last election over and over again about whether they did a wealth tax or not. Uh, they've got a real problem there if they get too sucked into um, doing that and they need to start thinking about what is the what is the policies in 2026 that are going to have a real um, appeal to to take New Zealand forward and um, what what kind of is a credible alternative and that sometimes means starting with a blank sheet rather than looking backwards and picking over the bones of what you got wrong. What of these leaks that we are seeing? I think it's been at least two, if not three, papers leaked. I'm not sure all of them was a, were cabinet papers, but nonetheless, they are things that oughtn't be making it into the public arena. What do you make of it? Well, I guess it's a sign there's some grumpiness probably in the public service. Um, I think, you know, it is unfair probably to the government to blame them for it. Um, you know, they can't control that. They should expect the public service not to leak. And what's been in there hasn't been particularly interesting. However, um, you know, these things are a distraction. They create headlines that look like a government's disorganised and they raise, you know, the reason these things are leaked is because someone believes it's something the public needs to know. So one is around, you know, fair pay agreements. The other one was around the Treasury not doing regulatory impact statements. Um, I don't think it's the biggest thing in the world, though. It just, National won't want it to carry on. Tim? Yeah, I think, um, I know there'll be a lot of public servants in Wellington very disappointed by um, that because they pride themselves on their professionalism and serving the government of the day. Um, I think um, it's probably a reflection of probably um, people not being very experienced in a change of government and what that means and how you have to sometimes do things that um, are directed by the politicians and not necessarily what you agree with. So hopefully some people uh, get, get, uh, get the point of what, what the point of being a public servant is. Uh, a good deal of sensitivity one imagines in that sector at the moment, given the expectations of uh, rationalisations, well, they're actually already underway in the form of non-replacements, etc., uh, but more to come potentially. Thank you very much, Tim Hurdle, Neil Jones.